beginning with verse 7. Hebrews chapter 3, please. Hear the word of God. Hebrews 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now I want this morning to draw our attention to just one sentence of all that, which is verse 13. Let me read it again. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, it's going to take me a minute to get there, uh, because this, it's part of this longer passage that we began last week that's a rather, frankly, a rather difficult one, a rather complicated one. So I want to walk us through it deliberately, uh, to review quickly, and then to get to this sentence that I think is, is very, very important for us. Uh, and I say that not condescendingly. It's obviously in the Bible, so therefore it is important for us. Uh, but it certainly would take up our attention this morning. Before I get there, I just want to make a word again as to why the deliberateness, that is, why it is that uh, we spend so much time working our way through the Scripture, and it's because, of course, we believe it to be the Word of God. And because we believe it to be the Word of God, we take it very seriously, not to beat each other over the head with it, but so that we can hear God. We believe that this is God speaking. As we read the scripture, we believe it's God's word to us. As, as the author of Hebrews puts in verse 7, therefore is the Holy Spirit, says, and then goes on to quote Psalm 95. I mean, this is the word of God to us, so we need to take it seriously, and in so doing, read it, engaging our whole minds to it, for the purpose of hearing God, for the purpose of being better listeners. And so we, we take it uh, very deliberately. We know there's a resistance in us, that we don't like being told who we are and what to do by somebody else. And so it's important for us to understand the one who's doing the defining and who's doing the telling is God. Not me, not you, but God. And so we work our way through the passage to say, okay, what's God saying about us? What's God saying about himself? Who are we to be? What are we to think? What are we to do? And to grab it and to take it from him. So that's why uh, this resistance is why I pray before I read the passage. Uh, so that God would overcome that resistance in us, I hope, and give us a God-given then desire to listen. So that's, that's why we take these things as deliberately as we do. Now, last week I made a distinction that I think is a helpful distinction as we're listening to God, as we read the scripture, between the theme of this book of Hebrews and its purpose. 
The theme is its subject matter, and the theme is the supremacy or the superiority of Christ. That is, Christ himself is greater than everything. He's better than the prophets, he's better than the angels, he's better than Moses. We'll see, he's better than the, the covenant he brings, he's better than the, the old covenant, he brings the new covenant. He's, he's, he's superior to everything and to everyone, thus we should listen to him. And he's superior because he's the very son of God, he's God in the flesh. He's the one who's been appointed heir of all things. He's the creator of all that is. Uh, he's the one who's the exact radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of God. Uh, he's the one who upholds the whole universe by the word of his power. That is, if he stops, everything stops. Think about that. If you and I stop, life goes on. Sometimes better. <laughs> but with him, if he stops, everything stops. He's, he's it. He's the very center of all that is. He upholds the whole universe, by the word of his power, he made purification for sins. After doing that, he was exalted, uh, seated at the right hand of majesty on high, and there given a name that is above every name. That is, that he's, he trumps everything. I was talking to a person just this week who's not a believer, and I basically said this. Uh, I hope not frustrated, but I said this. If you can find anybody better than Jesus, trust him. Uh, because I knew, A, he couldn't, though he might try and I trust in his trying will come to see the greatness of Christ that's the subject matter of this book of Hebrews it's Christ is great he's superior to all now what motivated the author of Hebrews by the Holy Spirit to write about the superiority of Christ the supremacy of Christ is his purpose the reason he wrote was to enable his readers those folks and ultimately us as well to be able to persevere in the faith. That's his purpose. He said, all right, I see in these people wavering. For instance, in chapter 10 of Hebrews, in verse 23, he says to them this. He, said, he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. So you get this sense that perhaps they were wavering. There was a certain wavering of faith uh, that's going on. Certain circumstances had come into their life that would cause them to begin to wonder about the supremacy of Christ, about the superiority of Christ, the greatness of Christ. Is he really the one who made purifications for sins? Is he really the one in whom I can trust for my eternal destiny? So there's this sense of, of wavering. In that same chapter, uh, verse uh, 34, he writes, or verse 35, he says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has such a great reward. And he observed in passages that we've already considered in chapter 2, uh, that perhaps they were in danger of drifting away, that perhaps they were in danger of neglecting this great salvation. Or in verse 12, as I read, that perhaps there was evil, unbelieving hearts among them, leading them to fall away from the living God. And so, so he sees this wavering in them, and he's writing to them that they may persevere in the faith, to continue on. That's his purpose. That's his reason why. And that's what this passage is about, because he's asking the question, how can I... How can I affect this perseverance? How can I encourage them on? How can I get them to continue on uh, in faith so that they wouldn't drift away, they wouldn't neglect, they wouldn't fall away, they wouldn't waver in the context of faith? So that's why he's, he's writing all this. Now, you may ask, but can't I have confidence, being a Christian, that I will persevere to the end? And of course, the answer to that question is yes. You can have great confidence. You can have great confidence because the scripture tells us over and over and over again that our salvation is a work of God. 
He's the one who chose us. He's the one who sets out our destination. He's the one who then calls us. He's the one by the Holy Spirit who gives us new life, enabling us to come to faith. He's the one that gives us his spirit to enable us to, 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 to grow in this holiness. He's the one who glorifies us. And the scripture says that he who began this good work in us will bring it to completion. Well, that's great confidence. The Lord Jesus said that it was, it, he came not to do his own will, but to do the will of his Father. And it was the will of his Father that all those who would come to Jesus would be saved. That Jesus wouldn't cast them out, but rather that he would raise them up on the last day. Great confidence. Jesus said, my sheep, hear my voice and they'll follow me. And he said, no one can snatch them out of my hands. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. So that's a two-fisted assurance. You've got Jesus' hand and the Father's hand. There we are. Great confidence that we'll continue to persevere. And so, so why the warnings? Why do, we, why do we read things? Be careful that you don't drift away. Be careful that you don't neglect this great salvation. Um, be careful that you don't um, have an evil, unbelieving heart that leads you away from the living God. Why do we read, for we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end? Well, those are all true statements, of course, that we do share in Christ if we hold to our confidence. I mean, that's the very definition of a Christian, one who's confident in Christ, one who believes in Christ. And that's true of us through the whole course of our life. Becoming a Christian isn't something that you start out in and then quit. Say, well, I once believed, but I don't anymore. Because you see, the very transformation that takes place in the heart of a person who becomes a Christian is very, very, very dramatic. So dramatic that when the Bible speaks of it, it talks about, as, he does, as Ezekiel talks about, is taking out a heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh, or as Jeremiah talks about it, about writing God's law upon our hearts, or as Jesus spoke about it, the sense of being born again, something very dramatic life-transforming, changing takes place in the life of someone who becomes a Christian. I read in our little thing that we've been calling the announcement. Uh, I don't know if I'll keep doing that, but I rather like it. I like just sort of standing up and saying something really great uh, that comes from the Scripture. What I read this morning was out of Colossians in chapter 1, verse 13, and it was this. He, that is God, has delivered us from the dominion of darkness. Think about that. The thing that happens when a person becomes a Christian is that he's transferred, taken out of, uh, you could also trans, uh, translate this, transplanted out of, ripped up, out of a kingdom being ruled by darkness. Uh, that which isn't of God, being ruled in darkness. Ephesians 5 even says that we are darkness. They don't just live there, we are. So he's been taken out of this kingdom, this rule of darkness, and he says this transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so there's a sense when one becomes a Christian that you no longer live in darkness, you no longer are darkness, but you've been taken out of that rule and been transplanted where there's redemption and forgiveness of sins, where you're free in Christ, where, where, where you're no longer in darkness. That's taken place. And so the question that we ask is, well, can I be secure living in that light, living in the kingdom, the dominion of the very Son of God, where there's redemption and forgiveness of sins? And of course the answer is yes, that's taken place. That's the transformation. Our inclinations are now changed. 
We moved away from rejecting God utterly to now believing in Him and trusting Him. It's that kind of transformation that's taken place. That's why Jesus referred to it as being born again. It's a whole other birth. That, that it isn't a physical birth. We're all born physically into the family of Adam, if you will. And thus we would inherit all that was his. Condemnation. Pollution from sin. And now born into the family of God. By way of Christ. And the Spirit who changes our hearts. That's what's taken place, you see. And thus we can be secure in the midst of that. But, but you see, the, whole, the, the, the author of Hebrews continues, though, these, these warnings. Don't drift away. Don't neglect it. Don't fall away. And the question is, why? Well, because of something he heard the Holy Spirit speak in Psalm number 95. We won't go back there. We did that last week. We looked at Psalm 95, which he quotes in verses 7 through 11. But in that particular psalm, it's a, it's, it's a looking back to the Hebrews as they left Egypt and were on their way to Mount Sinai. And in that particular situation, difficulties came up. Difficulties like they ran into something called the Red Sea. Right? But God opened it up. And they walked across on dry land. They went into a place where there was no food, so he gave them manna. They, they wanted meat. He gave them quail. Then they come to a place where there's no water, and they begin to complain and to grumble. And God says, ah, this is just revealing what's in your hearts. I gave you these circumstances in order to test to see what was there, and what I'm seeing is there's unbelief. You'd rather live in Egypt, in slavery there, without me, than to be in a circumstance that makes you uncomfortable with me, because you won't trust me. And, of course, then God opened up the rock, and the waters came. But... But the author of Hebrews sees that. He says, oh my, that was a community of people who claimed to belong to God. This is a community of people to whom I'm writing that claim to belong to God. The question I have is this profession of faith which they make something which they really possess in their own hearts and lives. Because the truth of the matter is the difficulties do come into our lives. And they come in in part as tests for us to see what's there. And the question then for this author is, how can I enable them? What can I say that will enable them to persevere? And he says, well, I know what I'll say. I'll tell them how great Jesus is. Reflect on that. Think about him. Turn your eyes away from the, from the difficulties that you're facing and your own personal weakness and look to him and trust him. So therefore, his purpose, I want them to persevere. His theme, the superiority of Jesus. Notice how he puts it here, verse 12. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the the deceitfulness of sin. See, great danger, even for believers, great danger is that sin is still present in this world. It's still around, still within And it deceives. Sin is a lie. Sin is always out to tell us that what God has promised isn't true. And so you see, when difficulties come into life, as it came into the lives of the people to whom the author of Hebrews is writing, even in the context of persecution for them, when difficulties come into life, then we begin to wonder, is God really for me? Does God really love me? Is God really present with me? Does God really care about me? 
and sin then begins to deceive and says, no, God really doesn't care. If he really cared, do you think he'd be going through this trouble? If he really cared, do you think this, circumstances would have, this circumstance would have really happened? If he really cared, do you think you'd have such trouble in life? That begins to play. And if we give in to that, you see, then our hearts become hard and hard and hard and turned away from God. Jesus spoke of such deceit. Turn to Matthew and chapter 13 very quickly. You know this parable, but it's always good to see it with your own eyes. Matthew chapter 13. It's what we call the parable of the sower. And you know that this situation, you have four different scenarios. The seed goes out, falls in four different places. In one, it doesn't come up at all. In two places, it sort of comes up, but then dies away. And in another place, it, because the soil is so good, it comes up and bears great fruit. Okay? Jesus' explanation, verse 18. He says, Hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. It has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. As for what was sown in the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. And so you get the situation four scenarios, but in three of them, there's no real conversion, because there's no real perseverance there's this seed he says metaphorically that's sown upon the rocky soil and the problem there is that it can't get great root so in the physical when the sun comes out it withers away and dies but his point is this if there is no good root that takes place when persecution comes even though someone may be in the community of believers and even though it may appear that they received it with joy when persecution and suffering for the name of Christ comes Boom, they're gone. Why? Because sin comes to deceive. And sin says, believing and following in Jesus isn't worth what you're now experiencing. Believing and following Jesus isn't worth what you're sacrificing. It's not worth your job. It's not worth your reputation. It's not worth uh, your standing in the community. Uh, it's not worth, perhaps, uh, the relationship that you have with your family. It's not worth your life. And you begin to think, oh, okay. That must be true. And so if there's no, no roots, if it really hasn't happened, if there really hasn't been any honest affection for Christ, where you can say, no, 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 no. Following after Christ is worth it all. Then it will simply reveal what's there, an evil and unbelieving heart leading you away. Jesus also used the expression when he said there's seed that falls <clears throat> among the thorns. And what happens among the thorns, of course, and the weeds is that the thorns and weeds grow up and choke out anything that comes up. And he said, well, that's like what happens when someone hears the word and, again, you, you think there's a response that's positive, a th response of conversion, but then the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches come in. And you know the worries of the world. We all have them. We all experience the worries of the world. They seem to just pile upon us. You can fill in your own worry of the world 
maybe you have a worry of the world of the week that just sort of hits you on a particular week, a particular day, and, and that's the thing that seems to possess you at that moment in time. And it might be a financial situation, it might be a relationship situation, it might be loneliness, uh, it might be a desire for something that you don't have, it might be a physical thing, it might be uh, a spiritual thing, just a worry of the world. How am I going to make it? And if that becomes your distraction, and that thing takes over your mind, you see, sin comes in and says, this is more important than God, and quite frankly, he can't help you with this. Because if he could help you with this, he would have, and he didn't, so therefore, don't worry about him. And the deceitfulness of riches comes both ways. If you have it, you trust in those riches and think everything is fine. You don't have it, you think, what I really need is money. And you see, sin comes and says, if only you had more, if only you had this, then you'd be fine. Or sin comes and says, since you have all of this, then you are fine. It's like the rich fool that Jesus spoke of, who had a great prosperous year. And so he says, I know what I'll do with all my wealth. I'll just build bigger barns and I'll just keep it. And it'll be great. And I'm secure and fat and happy. And that was great for a day. Then that night he died. And the scripture said he was completely unprepared for that. Because while he was rich towards men, he had no riches towards God and thus no faith, no trust. And he died and looked back, no doubt, to say, I missed it all. You see, riches can deceive. There's all kinds of ways sin can deceive us. Sin can deceive us in the context of our own pride. We can think, no, I can do it, which is the exact opposite of the gospel, of course. Jesus comes to us and says, you can't, I did, trust me. And we say, no, I can. If I only can clean up my act just enough, then I'll be acceptable to God. Then there's the self-pity that comes in, the deceitfulness of sin that says, oh, your sin is so great, God would never forgive that one. Or the self-pity that comes in and says, God really can't love people like you. And then there's the envy that comes in and says, oh, if only I had what they have. If only I had the position they had. If only I had the sexual freedom they have, I'd be happy. And the seduction is, oh, Jesus can't satisfy in any one of those in your life. His ways aren't the right, the good ways. And so the author of Hebrews knows that all of these deceits can come in in the context of sin. And so he's asking the question, all right, what will enable these people to continue to persevere? And he gives an interesting one. Notice in verse 13. He says this, But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. He said, here's the means by which God has established to enable you to persevere. Now there's other ways that God has given to us to persevere. None are to be neglected. But so serious is this one that the author of Hebrews just points it out in the midst of a, of a very difficult circumstance of wavering in the context of their own lives. And he says, listen, I want you to understand that to keep your hearts from hardening, the way that God's going to work is to enable you to exhort each other and to cause you to exhort each other and to encourage each other. That's what he's going to do. And so that's what we must, that's what we must really do. This kind of encouragement, this means that God uses, isn't this exhorting the way we're confronting each other all the time, but it's the kind of encouragement that a coach does at halftime. He says, I know you feel like you're losing. Well, coaches are a little more blunt than that. But he says, he's a nice coach. I know you feel like you're losing, 
But he says, no, you're really going to win. Why? Because you trust in Christ. See, that's why when I preach, and I, we talk a lot about preaching around here, but these people do to me, and one of the reasons I don't uh, give lists on things you're to do is because when I hear sermons like that, I leave with this list, and by number three, I've either failed or forgotten. I really don't want to hear sermons about all the things I'm to do. I really want to hear sermons about all the things that Christ has done. Because, you see, that's what encourages me to persevere, to look at him and say, oh, yes, he really is great. Oh, dear, I know there's things I'm to do, but I won't do them until I catch a glimpse of him, the very one who's done it. So the author of Hebrews says we're to encourage one another. That's the means. You know, in in the House, there's the House Ways and Means Committee. And the House Ways and Means Committee is to um, um, overlook and oversee all the bills that raise revenue. Why? And why is it called the Ways and Means Committee? Well, because it's revenue that's the ways and means to make all of this work. And you see, the church is the very Ways and Means Committee of our perseverance. God has appointed us, and he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be the means through which you all persevere. God uses means all the time. Uh, He does save us, but he doesn't save us apart from his word. And so his word is the means by which he saves us. And he tells us the very same thing, that we won't persevere without this exhorting one another all the time, every day. You say, all right, what are we to say? Well, the difficulty you see in this command to exhort each other every day is that generally when we need that encouragement the most from someone, we're most apt to isolate ourselves from them. See, when things aren't going well in our spiritual lives or our physical lives or any part of our lives, uh, we have a tendency, because of the deceitfulness of sin, to isolate ourselves from people. We really don't want to tell them what's going on. And so when we're in the midst of a temptation, we normally try to handle that by ourselves so that nobody else knows because we're convinced because of the deceitfulness of sin. That if we tell anybody about our sin, they'll, they'll, they'll shun us. They'll think, oh, how horrible you are. But you know, the truth of the matter is that doesn't happen. Why? I want to let you in on a little secret. We're all in the same boat. There is no temptation, but such as is common to every single one of us. Sometimes you see when we're in that circumstance, the deceitfulness of sin comes and says, oh, you know, you really need to clean up your act. Then you can be part of the church. Now, the first thing that we admit when we become part of the church is that we're sinners in the sight of God without hope except in his sovereign mercy. As I've said so many times, I've already admitted to you that the best I can do on my own is hell. So it's really, really hard after that statement for me to impress you too much with my godliness. Because that's who I am without Christ. That's who I am inherently. And so you see, we come together as a company of people like that. But yet when we find ourselves being tempted, we find ourselves in difficulty, then we have a tendency to pull away because of fear, because of fear of embarrassment, because of pride, because of self-pity. Oh, I don't want to be a burden to them. And oftentimes, we don't like to encourage other people because, you see, we don't want to get that much involved in the context of their lives. We just as soon stay away. We say, well, who am I to say this? Or who am I to do that? Or who am I to get involved in the context of their lives? They might think I'm holier than thou and all of that. But, of course, that's not true. They know you. So you don't have to worry about them thinking all that. 
just get in. Because the scripture says that we need to do this in order for us to persevere. And you see, if we don't take advantage of this, then either God is wrong or we're in danger. So you say, well, how can we do this? Well, as Jesus talked about the deceitfulness of sin that comes in the midst of persecution, uh, we can say things to each other to encourage, just like the author of Hebrews did. For instance, in, in Hebrews in chapter 10 and verse 32, he puts it like this. Turn there quick. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. He says, But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. So get the picture. This is how they were living. In this kind of a situation, later on in chapter 12, you get the impression that none of these folks were martyred. They hadn't shed any blood yet, but they certainly had lost their social standing as Christians because they were Christians and had lost their property. Now, what would motivate them to do that? What would enable them to do that? And he says this, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. See, that's the encouragement that we give to each other by way of reminder. Don't forget that whatever it is that's going, going on in your life, whatever it is that you may feel like you're losing, Remember that you have a more valuable one, and that is Christ. And no one can take that. And as long as you have that, you haven't really lost anything. The Apostle Paul said, I count everything to be lost for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Job, you remember, said, even though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I mean... It's like he's going to take my whole life away, but, 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 but you still have him. And so therefore you have that which is more valuable than even, than even your own life. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? But you see, if you have Christ, then whether or not you have the whole world is irrelevant because you already have that which is more valuable than the whole world. If you would lose the whole world and have Christ, you've lost nothing. And you see, that's the encouragement with which we give. The Lord Jesus said, Blessed are you when you're persecuted for my sake. They did that to the prophets. Rejoice and be glad. It means you belong to me. The Apostle Peter said, Don't worry when you're facing suffering as if it's some sort of strange thing that's going on in First Peter chapter 4. He says, But be blessed because the spirit of glory and of God is upon you. See, that's the kind of thing that we need to be encouraging each other with, with these very truths from Christ. And not only that, we need to encourage each other with our very lives, just the way that we live. You see, one of the great fears that we have is that something's going to overtake us that will destroy our faith. And what's encouraging to us is being in community with each other in such a way that we can watch other people go through stuff that's harder than anything we've ever gone through and watch them come out the other end believing. Turn to hmm, Psalm 119. In verse 74. One sentence, very helpful. This is how he lived to encourage others so that they wouldn't have hard hearts, that they would continue on in the faith. Psalm 119, 
verse 74. The psalmist has just described the difficulties of life. In fact, great difficulties in his own life. And he writes then, Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice. Now that doesn't mean that people looked on him and said, I'm glad it's him and not me. Or he really deserves that. They weren't happy about the fact that he was going through suffering. He said, Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I've hoped in your word. You see, what was the driving force in his life was to realize that by his very life, in the midst of horrible circumstances, he could encourage others to maintain faith. And the way that he could encourage others to maintain faith was maintaining faith in the midst of the trouble. No doubt somebody was encouraging him as well. And that was the very essence of his life. This week in Vacation Bible School, I learned something very helpful in this regard as well. If you were here Friday night, you saw the, you saw the video with Safari Jane. And Safari Jane was by a giraffe. And we learned, well, we didn't learn this because we already knew this part, that giraffes have long necks. But what I didn't know about their long necks, I thought they just had long necks so they could get the you know, leaves nobody else could get. But, she, but Safari Jane informed us that scientists have said that giraffes have long necks and it helps them see predators from a distance. That's really cool for the giraffes. But then, Safari Jane also told us, that because giraffes are like that, other animals know that. So zebras and wallabies and antelopes hang around with giraffes because they look at the face of the giraffe and if the giraffe looks cool, then they know everything's fine because they know the giraffe can see farther than they. And as I heard that, I began to think of all the giraffes in my life. All the other believers who have longer necks than I do, who've seen way more than I've seen and who can see way more than I can see. out there. I started thinking of all the old dead guys that I read who see so well all the predators that are out there historically. And they go, oh, I need to watch for that. I need to watch for that. I need to watch for that. And then all the people that I counsel with, who, who I say, well, what about this? And what about this? And ah, The way that we encourage each other is that we find the long necks around us and we go for them and we hang out with them and we watch them. And in their presence, we feel protected. And God, God gives us that gift. In a community like ours, when our church first got started, uh, Karen and I and a few others were about the oldest ones. <laughs> we still are. Uh, I don't know how that works. I was hoping it wouldn't be the case. But, but we were younger, older ones then. And, 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 and so we didn't really have anybody to look to. But now, by God's grace, our church has become a little more fully orbed demographically. And so I know that there are some families, some couples, for instance, with no children who are watching those with young children. And those with young children are watching those with teenage children. And those with teenage children are watching those who have uh, children who are getting married. And then we're watching those who's, who are taking care of elderly parents and all that kind of thing. And you see, that's a way that we watch and we look and we encourage one another because I watch you at the stage I'm in and the stage ahead of me and I'm encouraged because I see that you made it through this stage and you still believe. And that's encouraging to me. And so we're to live that way. We live encouraging one another because of the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives us. And I know that there are times we like to engineer the gifts of the Holy Spirit and we take tests and we figure out what gifts we have and how we're to use those. And there's a place for that and all that's fine. But the truth of the matter is when we come together as believers, gifts happen. And when we feel weakest in a circumstance and situation, very oftentimes God shows up strongest in that moment. 
And people are actually helped and people are actually encouraged in the midst of that. But the two questions you see that fall out of this for us is, number one is, are you in a place to be encouraged? And number two is, are you in places to encourage? Because you see, if you're not in a place to be encouraged, this says, unless God is wrong, that you're liable to, have, to grow into a hardened heart. Because he says that we need to be exhorted every, every day so that we don't get that. So we need to be in those places. That's why we emphasize, this is no sales pitch, but that's why we emphasize for your own soul's sake, for my soul's sake, all of our men's Bible studies and women's Bible studies and covenant groups and Sunday school classes and all of that, because this is to take place every day, not just on Sundays, but all the time. We need it all the time. This is God's means of perseverance every single day. We need to bump into Christians. We need to see Christians. We need to encourage each other, just in the context and the course of our comings and goings in our relationships. If that's not happening, we're in danger, you see. We need that. Unless, of course, God is wrong. And I'm not willing to bank on that one. So we need to be in community, one with another. Our lives need to reflect that. And so we are in various communities. In the context of your family, is your identity, in the context of your family, with a relationship with your spouse, with a relationship with your children, with a relationship with your parents, is your identity this? And I'm to live in such a way and speak in such a way and act in such a way that will encourage them to continue to follow Christ. Be baptized. Little Braden this morning, I just stand up and we do that all the time because we have tons of kids around here. It's a good thing we're not a Baptist or our water bill would be huge. But I save it from week to week just because I'm, you know, Presbyterians are Scottish too. But, uh, uh, so keep the holy water under here. But the um, but I ask you to stand up. Why? To recognize that as a believer in Christ, that one of the ways little Braden and our children will come to love Christ is if they see us loving Christ. We're to encourage them in their life. One of the ways that marriages work in the context of the body of Christ is that if our marriages work and we can encourage others in the context of their marriages, Karen and I would not be married today, I suspect, had it not been for a community of believers who helped us during times of difficulties. And so you see, we need that kind of encouragement all the time, every day. And the reason that it works is because the content of the encouragement is Christ. See, God has established a way for us to persevere in the faith that Jesus is glorified every day. Because, you see, in order for us to make it, we have to get together and not talk baseball as much as I love to do that, and I'd be happy to do that after we talk about Jesus. But, um, but the way that we encourage one another is we talk about Jesus. We pinpoint and point out how he is great. We pray for each other. We talk to each other. We share each other's burdens in all those kinds of ways, always taking them to Jesus, trusting him. I don't know how many times I've walked into situations that are horrible, and I say, I look at the person, and they look at me, and I go, I don't know what to do here. Let's pray. I don't have a clue how this is going to work out. This is bad. It's painful. So let's transfer all of this to Christ. Let's look to him. And then we trust he works in some way to enable us to continue to persevere. But in the midst of that, you see, he's glorified by these means. Let me finish with this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was uh, a German Christian during uh, the Nazi regime. 
1933, the Nazis formed the German Christian Church Movement. Uh, shortly thereafter, in response to that, the evangelicals in Germany uh, formed what they called the Confessing Church uh, as a resistance church against that which the Nazis were infiltrating. In 1934, or 1935, uh, a seminary was formed, the Preacher's Seminary, it was called. Um, Bonhoeffer became its principal and its primary teacher. 1937, the Nazis closed the Preacher's Seminary. Later that year, they arrested all the seminarians. 1937, the year that all the seminarians were arrested, Bonhoeffer published a book aptly titled The Cost of Discipleship on the Sermon on the Mount. Then the next year, he published this book called Life Together. 1943, he was arrested for a controversial and unsuccessful assassination attempt on the life of Adolf Hitler. In 1945, he was hanged at a concentration camp. But he writes about life together. He does so as one who lived in the midst of that kind of context where being a Christian was very costly and associating with other Christians was costly as well. And as one with a long neck, he writes this. The physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. In other words, during those times, he's saying, I don't know what I would have done had I not had opportunity to know other believers and have other believers cross my path. He said, the believer need not feel any shame when yearning for the physical presence of other Christians as if one were living so much in the flesh A human being is created as a body. The Son of God appeared on earth in the body for our sake and was raised in the body. In the sacrament, the believer receives the Lord Christ in the body and the resurrection of the dead will bring about the perfected community of God's spiritual, physical creatures. Therefore, the believer praises the Creator, the Reconciler, and the Redeemer, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the bodily presence of other Christians. The prisoner, the sick person, the Christian living in Dispora, recognizes in the nearness of a fellow Christian a physical sign of the gracious presence of the triune God. In their loneliness, both the visitor and the one visited recognize in each other the Christ who is present in the body. They receive and meet each other as one meets the Lord in reverence, humility, and joy. They receive each other's blessings as the blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if there is so much happiness and joy even in a single encounter of one Christian upon another, what inexhaustible riches must invariably open up for those who by God's will are privileged to live in a daily community with other Christians. And you get a sense that he's writing that rather longingly. Because that's ceased in the context of his own lives. And I think he's writing with a long neck to us, saying... Don't miss out on what you now have. Take advantage at every turn, at every moment of the fact that you have relationship, that you have community, that you have available to you very easily the faces and lives of other believers. So he goes on to say this. Of course, what is is an inexpressible blessing from God for the lonely individual is easily discarded and trampled underfoot by those who receive the gift every day. 
it is easily forgotten that the community of Christians is a gift of grace from the kingdom of God, a gift that can be taken from us any day, that the time still separating us from the most profound loneliness may be brief indeed. Therefore, let those who until now have had the privilege of living a Christian life together with other Christians praise God's grace from the bottom of their hearts. Let them thank God on their knees and realize it is grace, nothing but grace, that we're permitted to live in the community of Christians today. And then he says, among serious Christians, now when he says serious Christians, he means those people who are willing to profess Christ with a gun barrel in their face. All right? When we say serious Christians, uh, we mean all kinds of good things, but that's what he meant. Among serious Christians in congregations today, there's a growing desire to meet together with other Christians during the midday break from work uh, for life together under the word. Life together is again being understood by Christians today as the grace that it is, as the extraordinary aspect, the roses and lilies of the Christian life. And I think that's a word to us that we mustn't despise. In fact, we must embrace with great affection the wonderful community that God has given to us and take every advantage to meet in it and to relate to it and to be in a position to receive and be in a position to give the encouragement that enables perseverance. Let's pray. Father, I do pray for me and for us, that the very intent of our faith would be to live in such a way that depending upon you and showing you to be great and showing you to be completely satisfying in our lives, that we would be able to encourage others not to follow the deceitfulness of sin, not to be tricked but rather to unmask it and see the truth. To see that you are, in fact, more satisfying than anything else we could ever have, thus anything that we could possibly lose would not be worth losing you. So we pray, Father, that you would satisfy us by all that you give to us in our Lord Jesus and that we may faithfully walk in him. This we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you that uh, we have elders available to pray. So please take advantage of that. Please take advantage of that. I don't know what I would do if ever we came to a time when I didn't have the opportunity simply to call somebody and say, pray for this. That day may come. I don't know. I'm not a prophet. But as long as it's today, we need to continue to encourage each other. So if you have something about which you need prayer, please do it. Please take advantage. Please go to be prayed for by our elders. The response to the benediction is, I trust in Christ. Amen. When you say that, you're saying, that's my profession, and that's what reflects my heart. And when you say amen, you're not saying the end. You're saying, what I've just said, that is, I trust in Christ. What I just said is true. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, I trust in Christ. Amen.